everyone and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast. My name is Duncan Rayburn and it's time for a new series. Two of my friends recently, just in passing, uh, in conversation, suggested that I trace something of my own theological journey on this podcast. Basically, that I offer a sense of where I've come from and where I am now. And I thought this would be a good thing to do, even if it only becomes a sounding board for you to reflect on your own spiritual travels. Every now and then I think it's really a great idea to retrace our steps to get a sense of whether or not we're on the right track, or at least whether the track we're on makes some sense to us. I think it's very easy to get stuck into a kind of mode of being where you don't uh, notice uh, where where you are, basically. So I want to pause for a moment and have a look at the view. But instead of taking you on a strictly literal tour of my theological journey via autobiographical details, I thought I'd give you some sense of the view that I'm looking at through a kind of narrative setting, which, um, but kind of fictional narrative setting in a way, uh, although it has a relation to our our time. And that would somewhat explain uh, the very weird title of this series, which is A Murdered God and an Exiled Queen. At the very end of the series, then, I will go against my natural tendency to hide behind ideas and actually share some of my story with you. Not all of it, but just some of it. I think the key things um, that have shaped my thinking. So in a way, I'm starting from Um, where I am. This is the view from where I am, so that right at the end I can share a bit of how I actually got here. I think it's going to be interesting and fun, so I hope you enjoy the ride. For those of you who are interested, you can support me and this podcast at patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy, and feel free to mail me at unorthodoxy at zoho.com or send questions my way um, on Twitter at Duncan Rayburn. I'll post all of that on the show description. Okay, so now for an explanation of the setup, which should explain why the series has such a bizarre title. Imagine for a moment that you and I are what G.K. Chesterton calls philosophical detectives. For starters, let's imagine that such an occupation actually exists. The the task of the philosophical detective, Chesterton explains, would not just be to solve crimes, but to understand deeper motivations and thought patterns and contexts surrounding crimes, or even possible crimes, something along the lines of a kind of metaphysics of meaning. He says that while the ordinary detective goes to pothouses to arrest thieves, philosophical detectives would go to artistic tea parties to detect pessimists. Such a nice idea. So our job really, quoting Chesterton again, is to trace the origin of those dreadful thoughts that drive men on at last to intellectual fanaticism and intellectual crime. And it's a good thing too, because we have a crime on our hands here and it desperately needs our attention. Nietzsche describes the crime rather bluntly when he tells us in his book, The Gay Science, a book that isn't what you would think it is about, that God is dead. Nietzsche would also say that he has solved the crime because apparently we have killed God. We are God's murderers. And I will grant Nietzsche that it is possible that we had a part to play. I don't think we can be totally blameless and guiltless in this crime. But his solution, from the perspective of any decent philosophical detective, isn't all that satisfactory an answer. A more satisfactory answer would be one that factors in the other aspect of this terrible crime, 
namely that the queen has gone into exile. I realize that that must sound to you like a very obscure thing to say, but it will make sense in a moment because the queen in question in this little criminal investigation is theology. Theology used to be referred to in the medieval period as the queen of the sciences. Long before this idea came to the fore, Aristotle had noticed that perhaps the most fundamental desire that people have is the desire to know. We want to figure things out, like children who keep asking the question, why? We want to be able to discern the patterns in reality and experience, among other things. And this is what science really means in that phrase, queen of the sciences. It means applying reason to understanding. So the the core impetus behind the notion that theology was queen of the sciences was the idea that all other fields of study, all other sciences, whether in the humanities or in in the sort of physical sciences or natural sciences, would be regarded as disciples of theological wisdom. Think of the following as a an example of why such a hierarchy would be needed. It would not be a good idea, for instance, to figure out through scientific inquiry whether a drink is poison and therefore might kill you without having a proper theological sense of what it means to be alive. It doesn't help, in other words, to to have the facts if there is no real sense of what the facts are for. The queen of the sciences would be there to keep us in check to help us to know when what we're exploring and understanding is going to cause spiritual damage or not. To say that theology was the queen of the sciences was a way to acknowledge that there is a higher meaning and purpose behind everything that we do. And that meaning may be mysterious, but it is still important to to be subservient to it. In a way, you could say that mystery undergirds all of our understanding. To many people today who tend to believe that faith and reason, or often faith and science, are enemies, the idea of theological royalty might sound completely absurd and even a little bit irritating. But the ancients believed, and I think that they were right, that science of any kind could not really operate without faith. We believe quite naturally, for instance, that there is an ordered world outside our minds, and that our minds have the capacity to know this order. This is an implicit belief in all scientific study, but it cannot be proved scientifically. It has to be taken on faith, and without faith, science would be impossible. To say, for example, I believe in science is already to have gone beyond science into the realm of faith. To revert back to our metaphor, part of the reason for the introduction of a split between faith and reason I think, is that theology, the so-called queen of the sciences, has gone into exile. This is to say that the core grounding for why faith and reason are allies rather than adversaries has been rendered as an invisible and possibly even disposable subtext. And, to make matters worse, although some would say this actually makes things better, various other sciences are trying to take theology's throne. Some sciences and their respective scientists even presume that they are now in charge. Richard Dawkins, for instance, thinks that Darwinian theory allows us the possibility of being spiritually fulfilled atheists, which is nice for someone as philosophically illiterate as Dawkins, but not really for people who are fond of thinking. 
It's about as convincing as saying that now that I know that the mitochondrion has bacterial ancestry, all my existential perplexities have been solved. Anyway, the, the queen's absence from her royal residence doesn't mean that theology isn't saying anything to us today. Some of the trouble is, she seems to be saying a little bit too much. We get messages from her all the time. But if at one time in history theology delivered proclamations through her subjects with only occasional and usually very minor variations, seeming inconsistencies and rare heresies, now that the Queen is in exile, the messages we receive are horrendously fragmented. You could even say that heresy is the new orthodoxy. It seems positively fashionable to be regarded as a heretic, while orthodoxy has become a quaint and naive thing reserved for museums. Because of a vast array of different theological voices, it may seem to us that theology is not really one person, but several people masquerading as one person. Nowadays, we don't have Christianity, we have Christianities, plural. And it's pretty confusing. Now that the Queen is ruling from afar, her orders have become very difficult to follow. One message we might get would say, for example, that the existence of God is a matter of faith. Another says, no, it's a matter of knowledge. One messenger declares that God sometimes acts miraculously, but another suggests something else, something along the lines that physical causes are all we can be sure of. Miracles have ceased, says one message, while another claims that miracles are the norm. There are other contradictions that we receive too, or apparent contradictions, between free will and predestination, between moral absolutism and moral relativism, or between various afterlife speculations, universalism, annihilationism, and infernalism. We get disputed and contradictory solas out the wazoo, and, unsurprisingly, because of this disunity of royal announcements, it's no wonder that so many of us are absolutely bedeviled by the problem of evil. We could blame the Queen for all this, of course, and many of us do. We may think that she wasn't such a brilliant monarch to begin with. In any case, her communications are something of a severe PR problem. Not just for her, but for us, for the Church, for God. And then maybe we could speculate that she's gone mad, and maybe she was never really sane. Maybe she never had her doctrinal, ontological, and metaphysical ducks quite in a row in the first place. But... There is another possibility here. It's possible that we've received the fragments from our queen in exile, but we haven't taken the trouble to put them together. It's also possible, given that we're somewhat at the bottom of the trash heap of history, so to speak, that we, we don't know where to begin. But let's think for a moment about the other dimension to this philosophical crime investigation namely the murdered god. Nietzsche's famous parable of the madman makes for a worthy, although still disturbing, read. A man, totally at the mercy of his fractured mind, announces to everyone who will listen that God is dead and remains dead. And because, the madman claims, it's really our fault, some terrifying consequences are headed our way. The entire conceivable universe has been thrown into a state of anxiety, panic, and disorder. Nietzsche implies that massacres are inevitable and guilt is unavoidable. The lights have all gone out, and we're all in the dark. 
Nietzsche then asks a string of pertinent questions. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all the world that has yet been owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become God simply to appear worthy of it? Even if we're not ready to admit to having committed this crime against God and ourselves, and even if we believe we've had no part in it at all, the fact is that all of us must bear the brunt of it. In any case, good philosophical detectives that we are, or hope to be, we ask the powers that be, whoever they are in this weird story, to allow us to go to the morgue and take a look at the body. Uh, when we get there, though, we are told no body was found. All we really got was a note in a book by Nietzsche that informed us about what had happened and what had been speculated about by previous philosophical detectives. So the plot thickens. If God is really dead, where is the body? This feels suspiciously familiar. Uh, the last time someone couldn't find the body of God, it wasn't because he hadn't been murdered. He had been, but that the murder didn't quite take. Uh, you can read about that in Matthew 28, verse 6. God had certainly swallowed the poison of death, but it was death that ended up dying. Nietzsche meant a few things when writing about the death of God that are going to be relevant to our job as philosophical detectives on this case, but also, I think, to our lives as a whole. For one thing, he meant that belief in God had become untenable, if not a little ridiculous, mostly because of the West's commitment to the Enlightenment project. So that's something that we're going to look at in quite a bit of detail. Whether God is real or not is hardly Nietzsche's point. What we're living in is an imminent frame within which belief in God has become unbelievable. As Enlightenment's unique brand of reason had begun to shape the collective mind, people had begun to conclude especially that Christianity was barking up the wrong epistemological and existential tree. Nietzsche perceived, more accurately than many others before him or since, that this was not because reason had usurped faith, but rather because an alternate kind of faith had become more popular and thus more socially acceptable. It just happened to be a kind of faith that assumed that faith wasn't necessary for life. It was a faith that was basically unaware of itself. The mythical stance of modernity was that there was no mythical stance. And if we're going to be able to solve this criminal investigation of ours, at least part of our job will be to figure out the nature of that mythical stance. If we figure that out, I think we're going to have a much better sense of how to determine whether it was God who was murdered or something else, or maybe even nobody. Let's hope that what seems to be a murder investigation at this point turns out to be something that only involves looking for the missing queen. But I'm probably getting ahead of myself, and it's possible that I'm being too optimistic. Speculations can be useful, of course, for, for guiding us in our search, but we shouldn't forget that without proper information, they are still just speculations. We can only work from what we know, not from what we don't know or cannot know. All of this brings us to the question of how the investigation should proceed. And it should proceed, I think, along the lines of any investigation of what has gone wrong. 
by trying to figure out what is right. If you want to figure out what a disease is, you have to have a sense of what health looks like. Even if you want to be able to identify if a crime has happened, you have to have a sense of what the absence of crime is first. This is the modus operandi of Agatha Christie's Detective Poirot, and I think it's a pretty decent modus operandi. Some of the trouble we have today, and we will be exploring this, is that we have lost a sense of the connection between the real and the ideal. The ideal, for our purposes, is not some otherworldly fantasy, but the fullest possible reality of a thing. Or perhaps what makes the fullest possible reality of a thing possible. The ideal of a birch seed is a birch tree, for instance, and the ideal of a person is to become fully human. To have an ideal does not mean to deny a thing by means of some imagined possibility. It means recognizing what a thing is, um, and, and that would be noticing that it is still decidedly real, and yet it can still become more than itself. It could, in a way, become more real than it already is. To figure out what the fragmented messages from the Queen in Exile could possibly mean, it'll help to have a sense of the whole. After that, we might have a better sense of whether the fragment on its own is better than the whole. But of course, we certainly cannot judge fragments on their own divorced from any larger meaning. So to be absolutely honest, this will remain a difficult case to solve. There's a pretty good chance that we're only going to solve it partially, although my hope is that with thorough consideration of many of the details of the case, we will at least be on the right track by the time we can conclude. At the very least, I'm hoping to be able to convince you that the parts are part of something else. So what I'm offering you is basically a glimpse into my philosophical detective notebook. And I think it'll be helpful in a way if you you take some time to figure out your own story, your own way of piecing together the various theological fragments that you have been given, and and maybe we can begin to solve this crime together. So yeah, that, my friends, is the setup. In the episodes that follow, we're going to undertake something of an intellectual adventure. I am honestly really thrilled to be able to go on this adventure with you, and I hope as you find yourself considering, questioning, and even disagreeing with what I say, because that is always a possibility, that you will be able to find your own theological perspective on things being put back together. Maybe the queen will come out of hiding for you and the murdered god will be resurrected for you, but I can't, of course, make any promises. Whatever happens, I think it's going to be interesting. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Until next time, cheers.